First of all, I, uh, I, I meant to actually bring this up last week, and uh, I forgot, um, but I wanted to acknowledge and celebrate um, the fact that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, 46 of you showed up to the park, uh, and we had an opportunity to bless the city of Madison by, by doing extensive cleanup there. Um, to have so many of you show up, that, was, that, was, that, was, that blew me away. That was amazing. Um, and it was, a, it was a good opportunity to fellowship together, loving our city. Um, and, and I want to tie that reality and, and cel- that celebration in with something that I said last week as I challenged you during the Lent season as we're uh, preparing um, for Holy Week and celebrating the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior and then also his, the triumphal uh, resurrection. Uh, during Lent, as you're praying, I, I want to challenge you to be praying specifically for uh, friends and coworkers and neighbors uh, that don't currently believe the way you believe um, for, for a variety of reasons, that they, they don't yet follow Jesus. My encouragement was and challenge was to be praying for them, and not just for their salvation. Yes, pray for their salvation, but pray for their welfare. Pray for, um, just pray that uh, they might know the kindness and blessing of God in their life. And as you're doing that, I also laid on the challenge uh, to consider even inviting uh, your friends uh, to the Easter service. You've already heard that we're going to start on time uh, at 1030 for the Easter service. Uh, going to turn over a new leaf. But, uh, but I want to also challenge you to consider possibly inviting some of your friends here to that service. Uh, afterwards, uh, we're going to have a, uh, we're going to continue the momentum of blessing our city, in particular that park and the, that neighborhood, which is really our neighborhood here, I guess it's that direction, uh, by having an Easter egg hunt uh, and, and inviting the neighbors around that park uh, to the park. Um, and also, just to let you know, we're, we're also going to be serving mimosas. So there's that uh, as, a, as a way to, to encourage uh, you to invite others to. Uh, all of that being said, um, looking forward to uh, the, 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 the highlight of this season of spring uh, as we look forward to the res- celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, but putting that on your plate as you are praying uh, during the season of Lent. Well, this morning we now uh, continue our sermon series looking at the Beatitudes, and uh, we have uh, entitled, again, we've entitled this sermon series, The Paradox of Human Flourishing, because we said that although Jesus says that it is those with these dispositions, these Beatitudes, these are the ones, these are the people who are blessed, or we might say these are the ones who flourish These aren't dispositions we would normally associate with flourishing and blessing. They often are paradoxical and counterintuitive. And we've also said that these are not something that you do in order to get a benefit from God. (laughs) Jesus is not saying, do this and you'll be blessed. That's not how this works. Rather, under the reign of Jesus, this is how human beings experience blessing and flourishing. This is how we flourish in this new creation that Jesus himself is fashioning since his resurrection and will complete one day when he returns. But we can actually even go even further than that because these are the very characteristics and heart postures that help usher in Jesus's kingdom. 
when we see and experience these, they're not simply the fruits of his kingdom coming among us, but they're the actual avenues and means by which his kingdom breaks into the kingdoms of this world. And so we started three weeks ago. We looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. Two weeks ago, Cam preached on blessed are those who mourn. Last week, we looked at blessed are the meek. And today, we come to the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So with that before us, will you pray with me one more time as we seek Christ's presence with us now? Jesus, we do come now and ask that you would be present, that you would send your spirit to be with us as we engage this, your word. However we have come into this place this morning, whether we have come in celebrating, whether we have come in and we're in a season of difficulty and anxiety, whether we've come in uh, fully believing these truths that we're interacting with, or whether truth be told, we're trying to figure out if there's anything here worth, <laughs> worth holding on to and worth believing in the first place. Jesus, uh, however we find ourselves this morning, would you convince us that you saw fit to arrange it that we would be here this morning, that you actually had something to do with bringing us into your presence? And truth be told, for perhaps for many of us, it wasn't that long ago, not many years ago, that it would have been the last place on earth we would find ourselves on a Sunday morning sitting in a worship service, but here we are. So Jesus, speak to us, we pray. Your servants are listening, and we listen for your sake and in your name. Amen. Well, the Bible uses uh, many metaphors for the spiritual life. One of them draws on the physical reality that we regularly experience as human beings, that is, of hungering and thirsting. This is a biblical theme. God knows how fitting it is, the experience that we all know very well, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to illustrate the internal drive, to find satisfaction for our souls somehow, somewhere in this life. In Psalm 34, which we started off this morning hearing, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Prophet Jeremiah speaks of Yahweh being the fountain of living Water, which, of course, Jesus draws on in John when he tells the woman at the well that he himself is the living water. Jesus also says in John's gospel, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John later in Revelation We'll say that for the people of God, the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And furthermore, in the new heavens and the new earth, God's people will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. 
And it's no surprise, therefore, that when Jesus is about to go to the cross to participate in the greatest cosmic saving act in the history of humanity, and he wants his followers to remember him and what he's about to accomplish on that cross, he gives them a meal. And he says, take and eat, take and drink, and remember me. Jesus knows that hunger and thirst that we physically experience is a very good symbol, representation of what it is that every one of us internally longs and spiritually longs for in this life, to be satisfied. So how about you right now, sitting here this morning, what are you right now, what is your heart and soul right now most hungry for? Right now. Is there something right now that you feel like, I just do not think I could live without this? Because you're hungry for it. Maybe it's a particular job or a career. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's having a somewhat normal and put-together family life. Maybe it's having enough money in your bank account to be able to do the things you want to do when you want to do them. Now, none of these things are bad in themselves. So many of the things that we long to have and to know and experience in this life are, in fact, part of God's good creation. We were built to want them. But none of them, none of these desires, these hungers and thirsts, none of them will ever on their own be quenched in your soul. They weren't designed to be. And worse, when we allow them to take precedence over everything else in life, They can actually become an idol, which can be, instead of satisfying our hunger and thirst, can be like poison to our souls, actually killing us from the inside out. But Jesus says that there is a type of hunger and particular thirst that will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now, remembering that Jesus is instructing his disciples. Remember, he went up on the mountain, his disciples followed him there, and he began to teach. These are his disciples, those that are already following him as their king and as their savior. This is not about personal salvation. Often the Bible addresses our personal salvation when it uses the language of righteousness. But that's not the idea particularly here that Jesus intends to convey by the concept of righteousness. And this is also not the same thing as a longing to go to heaven when you die. Someone may be very well content with knowing that they will be with Jesus at death. And so death does not cause them fear. And that's a very good thing. And it is true that for those who are in Christ Jesus, death need not be feared. 
Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, yet though he die. All of that is true. But it's not what Jesus means here when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. As the British theologian N.T. Wright says, heaven is great in everything, but it's not the end of the world. Again, as a reminder, this is kingdom of heaven language. In the very next chapter of Matthew, as Jesus continues his famous Sermon on the Mount, he acknowledges that as human beings, we long to have physical needs satisfied. And when they aren't, we are prone to anxiety. He gets real with us. But in response to our need for things, he says this, but seek first my father's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long for God's kingdom to fully come to fruition in this life. For all that is wrong in this world right now to be made right, that our Father's will will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven, that the kingdoms of the world would all bend their knee to the true, just, and benevolent will of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is this, in fact, that should drive the mission of Res Press. This is the proper motivation for loving our neighbors of Madison, for seeking to be a blessing to the city. Not political correctness. Not trying to fit in with culture and society. Not in support of a particular political platform. But rather... Because what humanity's greatest need is, is to know a relationship with and experience the righteous reign of the one whose kingdom is perfectly just and benevolent to all within its borders. And so when hungering and thirsting for righteousness lines up with tenets or policies of a particular political party, great. <laughs> Fine. But it's not the basis, and we must be careful that it's not our motivation. And one way we can check to see if our hunger and thirst is for God's righteousness and for his will to be done on this earth is whether there are ever any ways that our opinions actually line up with concerns of those on the opposite side of the political spectrum from ourselves. Because no kingdom of this world, nor political party of any nation, has exhaustive and exclusive comprehension of the justice and righteousness of God. None. And if we can't find, I would suggest, if we can't find any way 
that our spiritual hunger and thirst lines up with anything of those on the other side, it should be a warning that perhaps, just perhaps, we have simply exchanged the righteousness and justice that Jesus intends to see fully engaged in this world for a particular political party's platform. And furthermore, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is not a desire to see the church take over the world. Jesus is not inviting us to some kind of Christian nationalism or a restoration of Christendom. The fact that the last beatitude addresses persecution and says, Jesus says, you are blessed when you're reviled, not when your side conquers, should tell us that the way Jesus' kingdom works and infiltrates the kingdoms of this world is not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And we're often tempted to confuse. Somebody is calling me. Obviously, they do not know what I do for a living. We're often tempted, by the way, I, I was just reminded of a story that I have to tell. I'll come right back, I promise. I literally, this happened to me when I was in, in Queens, and it was from a, a friend who I'd met in my, the Theology on Tap group that we had got together in a bar. It was an invitation to atheists, uh, agnostics to come and just to explore the faith, what, what you know, just have a, a, a respectful dialogue. Guy in there, staunch anti-theist. But we got to be friends. I'm literally preaching one day. This is a text that pops up. He says, hey, John, I know you're doing your thing right now. But can you meet Patty and I for lunch afterwards? We have some news to share with you. Anyway, they were telling me they were, gonna get, they were getting engaged. They were actually going to get married. They'd been living together. They were going to get married. Anyway, that's a, I know you're doing your thing. So somebody was calling me. They, they didn't know I was doing my thing. But anyway, where were we? Thank you. We are often tempted and distracted to confuse a genuine longing and hunger for God's righteousness and justice in this world with demanding that we get our way when we think we are right about particular issues and concerns in this life. And in fact, often we are. But simply in the demand that others get it, <laughs> the same way that we get it, is not what Jesus means. When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And let's face it, res press, <laughs> being a church that is part of what is considered a more conservative denomination in our country, in a city that's considered to have a much more progressive political climate than most U.S. cities, can be a very difficult path to navigate wisely, humbly, and boldly sometimes. Yes? This last time I was in New York, I was having a conversation with somebody, a friend of mine at Presbytery, he was asking me about my experience in Madison and the social climate here, and I was explaining to him that 
in many places still in the South, if you're having a conversation with someone and you tell them you're a Christian, often the response is, oh yeah, I am too. Me too. We all here. When you tell someone in New York you're a Christian, often the response is, well, that's great. Everybody has their thing. But when you tell somebody in Madison that you're a Christian, often the response is, why? <laughs> why? And there might not be a more divisive, complex, and social public matter of justice and righteousness for a follower of Jesus to engage in right now than the topic of abortion. Just my saying that word in a sermon likely caused everyone in here an internal visceral reaction. And if you weren't following the sermon thus far, you just tuned in, so welcome back. But there are very few topics right now in our country that have multiple issues of justice and righteousness wrapped up together and interwoven in a way that divides us and makes it very, very difficult to even talk about and engage without someone being offended and angered. I would make the case, however... <laughs> That if there is any place to actually have a conversation about what it looks like to hunger and thirst, that Jesus' justice and righteousness would characterize how things are done in this world on any matter, it ought to be the church. But unfortunately, often the church is not a safe place to have these conversations. And abortion is one of those topics, few topics, where the circumstances involved and the multiple concerns that are associated with it make it an extremely complicated topic to even mention. Because in that issue, you have the philosophical issue of human life. And when does the status of the very image of God, when is that conferred on humanity? You have the issue of individual freedom and a history of years where women in our country have not had a full, vo uh, full vo voice. Couldn't even vote until 150 years after we were a country. And still often are not fully recognized in their full humanity as image bearers of God. And then there's the issue of the man in the picture or often not in the picture. So it's hard to talk about any kind of rights on the one hand or responsibilities on the other hand that he might have. And often one of the scariest and loneliest individuals in our country right now can be a woman who is pregnant. But the one place that ought to be a sanctuary for lonely people, the community that followed Jesus as their great shepherd, often, unfortunately, is the last place someone can feel safe, having to process the myriad of complexities of a pregnancy, especially on their own. And not to mention the complicated feelings one may have 
after. Unfortunately, the church is not likely to be a place to be able to unwind those complicated feelings. The issue is so complicated. In fact, that no matter what I say, someone will not be satisfied with what I say. I, I understand that. I was actually having a conversation trying to get input as I was preparing for the sermon, and someone said, be prepared to receive some emails. I welcome the emails, but I'd welcome a conversation as well. But I bring this up because of how I see Jesus teaching us that the Beatitudes can and should be a guide to how we go about engaging any cultural issue, especially the most complicated ones. You see, there's a progression in the Beatitudes if you haven't already picked up on them. Jesus starts with the poor in spirit. For Jesus' disciples, at their core, there is to be a sense that one is absolutely spiritually bankrupt and brings nothing to the table to impress God and enjoy his presence and his favor in their life. They know they are nothing without God condescending and extending grace and kindness beyond all measure and human comprehension. And then Jesus says, for those that are poor in spirit, they also are the ones who mourn. They look around at this life and they see the brokenness in this world, both their own contributions to the brokenness, but also the contributions of their fellow human beings, and they know things are not the way they're supposed to be. And instead of ignoring the reality on the one hand or cynically complaining about it on the other, they mourn. They grieve. They mourn the full extent of the ways that justice and righteousness is not fully known to every human being created in the image of God, not just the ways that affect them personally. And next, it is those who are the ones who interact with their fellow human beings with meekness, with gentleness. They're not weak. They're not soft on injustice, but they're meek. They listen. They seek to understand. It is the meek, Jesus says, who are blessed. It's the meek, paradoxically, are the ones who inherit the earth, not the proud, not the self-righteous, when Jesus is reigning. It is those who, therefore, know a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness, they have a longing in their gut that Jesus would make things right by his just and benevolent reign. And they long for Jesus' way to be known, not simply to have their own agenda enforced by a divine or political edict. And so whenever we come to a difficult conversation, it behooves us to remind ourselves of the poverty and spirit that Jesus' disciples are to live out of. It behooves us to mourn over the wide range of reasons that would cause us to mourn and to grieve. It behooves us to be meek and gentle as we engage the conversation, all of that behind the hunger and thirst for what is right and what is just. All of that is assumed whenever Jesus' followers are called to speak into the brokenness and fallenness of this world. Because there's a huge difference 
between a genuine, deep-down hunger and thirst from your gut that things would be different, that Jesus would be more and more executing his benevolent reign on the one hand and demanding that your side gets its way because you're just right on the other. Big difference. And Jesus never promises that those who take a stand on issues of justice and righteousness by force or by simply ignoring the character postures of his followers are to display that he will get behind their efforts. He does promise that those who hunger for justice, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, they will be the ones to be blessed, to flourish. I hate running. Thank you. I got an amen. I didn't get an amen before now, but I got an amen on that. I despise running. I was sitting at, this was probably, this was 2001, sitting uh, with a friend of mine. We met once a week early morning for breakfast and prayer and just sharing, just reading God's word together. We noticed that we had our 10-year high school reunion coming up. And we were looking at ourselves and realizing how out of shape we were. And we still had this hunger within us to impress others. <clears throat> that we decided, we looked at each other and said, all right, what are we going to do about it? And I don't know who said it first, but one of us said, let's run a marathon. Neither one of us were running at the time. We both hated running. But I think it was just the challenge that, it, that as, as those words went, it came into the air, it was like, Yes, let's do that. Let's train for a marathon. So we did. We ran a, I ran a marathon in 2002, the Nashville Country Music Marathon. It was uh, an amazing experience. Uh, as I'm, uh, probably the highlight is, I'm, there's ton, tons of stories, but the, the highlight, coming to the, the end of the finish line, the way they had the grandstand set up, you actually had to make a 90-degree a, a turn into the last quarter mile. And I remember just coming in and seeing all the people. Now, our wives had us, gotten us shirts with our names on it. So it was a white shirt, black three letters, John. So as I'm running, man, people are going, cheering on, go, John, go, John. It was actually very motivating. Coming around the bend on that last turn, the last quarter mile, grandstand. I mean, now people are, like, screaming, you know. And I'm getting, this, I'm getting a, a, a kick of adrenaline. I literally start to sprint. And people react to me starting to sprint as I'm trying to finish the race. 26.2 miles. And there's a guy in front of me. Dude is bulked. Got an army shirt on. Sorry. And he hears the crowd cheering for John. And he turns around and he sees me like I'm sprinting now. And I'm about to overtake him, and something within him clicks. And it's like there is no way that John is going to beat me in this marathon. Never met the guy in my life. I didn't beat him. Anyway, he turned on the burners as well. The way they advertised the marathon was at the end of the marathon, there was a local brewery who was advertising free beer on tap to any finisher of the race. And, and, and we knew that going into the race and it just pre preparing for the race, it just didn't, that was just an odd thing. Like 
beer, I, how will I possibly have a desire for beer at the end of a marathon? It was an odd appetite to have at 26.2 miles, but when I crossed that finish line, I was asking, where is the tap? My body, and this is what I've, as people have, if you're a runner, maybe you, you can probably explain this better than I can, but physiologically, your body has used every source of fuel it possibly knows after 26.2 miles, and you're craving for any kind of carbohydrates you can get your hands on. And beer sounded very satisfying. <laughs> it was not the appetite, not the thirst I was expecting to have at the end of a marathon but it was there and it was genuine and I've never tasted a beer that tasted so good as that beer after 26.2 miles of running. When we follow Jesus as his disciples, it should not surprise us that new appetites begin to well up with inside of us. Even appetites that we would have said years ago, there's no way I would ever want that. I would ever long for that. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So we should not be surprised when even our own appetites, our own longings, our own hungers, our own thirsts actually do change. And more and more are aligned with his kingdom and with what it looks like when he is reigning. And in fact, my brothers and sisters, we ought to pray for that. We ought to pray to Jesus. Jesus, grant me a spiritual hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Grant me poverty in spirit. Get me out of the way. May I genuinely mourn for the wide range of ways that there is injustice in this world. May I even engage in a way that is gentle, bold, not weak, but meek. Grant me that hunger and thirst for your righteousness, knowing that when that is our desire, Jesus promises we genuinely will be satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you might birth these beatitudes within us. That you would make us and shape us from the inside out. That we might be a people who are more characterized and known for our own poverty in spirit, for our own recognition of our spiritual bankruptcy, that we'd be a people known as those who genuinely mourn and grieve over the brokenness of this world, for those that are meek, that you would birth within us that desire, that disposition to interact with all of our friends, coworkers, neighbors with a posture of meekness and that we would genuinely hunger and thirst for your righteousness to be known to its full extent, knowing that with that, there is your promise that we would be ultimately satisfied. Jesus, help us to give us that desire to crave this, we pray, either for the first time
or continue to give it to us more. We pray for your sake. Amen.